Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and industry experts about everything from emerging trends to marketing strategies to regulatory pressures. Last week, members of the Organic Trade Association came together in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the segment's continuous improvement and to brainstorm with each other and legislators potential solutions to ongoing challenges facing the industry. Among the industry's main reasons to celebrate were record sales of organic products last year, which reached $52.5 billion, an increase of 6.3% from 2017. Organic food accounted for 91.3% of this, or roughly $47.9 billion of the sales, which is up 5.9% from the previous year. On the flip side, sales of non-food items such as fiber grew 10.6% to $4.6 billion, according to the OTA. In meetings on Capitol Hill with staff from more than 180 legislators' offices, more than 200 OTA members also touted how organic farming practices are helping to mitigate climate change and create economic hotspots in their communities. While there are many aspects to celebrate, OT members also asked legislative staff members for help ensuring organic integrity through increased enforcement and implementation of key provisions in the 2018 Farm Bill. They lobbied for support strengthening the unique public-private partnership that oversees the organic industry that was intended originally to ensure the standards continually evolved to meet consumers' changing expectations, but which in recent years have somewhat stagnated. At OTA's Policy Day, the CEO and Executive Director of OTA, Laura Bacha, walked through each of these issues, adding color and context as well as sharing next steps for the industry. Looking first at the quote-unquote solid sales growth of organic in 2018, Bacha attributed much of this increase to an uptick in organic fruit and vegetable sales, which rose 5.6% to $17.4 billion. This is on par with growth from the previous year, but far higher than the mere 1.7% of the overall fruit and vegetable category in 2018. The produce uh, part of the market uh, did did well again this year, and again, that's one of the places where we're seeing the uh, most common example of shrinking the premiums. The large-scale grocery stores are consolidating their purchasing. They're able to get better pricing. They're passing it on. And we're seeing trends where they're, they're working because they know their shoppers want organic and they want those shoppers in their stores that they're trying to offer the most competitive price they can, particularly with organic produce. Um, I've talked to some retailers recently um, Albertsons in Southern California, and they started experimenting this year with, do we need both conventional and organic options in the store? Like, if if they do well, why do we need to carry the conventional option? And they've started doing store set comparisons. They started with beets. Fairly simple. They're like, you know what? We don't need two kinds of beets. We only need organic beets. The price is great. The quality is great. People like the organic beets. We don't have to stock two kinds of beets. And they're doing a test right now in their stores where their entire wet head lettuce set, they're experimenting with whether or not they need to carry conventional and whether or not just carrying organic alone in the chain will work. So like that's you hear about that and you're like, wow, that's really cool. That's really pushing the envelope. 
organic produce is like 15% of the produce market right now, and I think the retailers are seeing if they can get good, consistent quality and the price is right, that they could push push the limit on it in their stores and they know it attracts people. So they're pulling things out in merchandising into the front so you walk in the store and you know this store is into organic. Like that to me is really pushing the envelope on stuff for a retailer to start asking those questions, right? That, but they said they need quality. It, they said they, it doesn't need to be the same price. It doesn't need to be rock bottom. It needs to be a decent price. It needs to not have like sticker shock when they walk in, in the store and they're doing a ton of pulling all the organic merchandising out. So I think there's exciting things happening in produce that way. Bacha also noted that many organic produce suppliers are having to quickly redo their planting schedules in order to keep up with the growing demand and at the same time navigate climate change and labor challenges. We're seeing a lot of production-scaled organic produce folks shifting where they're growing things. So it used to be the old adage was, you grew all the leafy greens in the central coast of California, spring, summer, fall, you go down to the desert in, in Yuma and you grow in the winter there. And we're hearing from the largest growers that they can't grow in the central coast in the middle of the summer anymore because it's too hot. The, the lettuce, baby lettuces and spinaches and greens, the leaf is too thin from the heat and it doesn't have the shelf life. And so they're pushing the envelope and they're producing in Oregon in the summer now, leafy greens, which even six years ago, if you went to Oregon and said, you know, you guys are gonna be a production center for baby spinach, you'd get laughed out of Oregon. People didn't think it was possible. So like literally within a five year plan, they're redoing all of their production schedules on what is some of the biggest uh, commodity. They're also, the production scale produce folks are moving to the East Coast and that's really, really interesting because it has always been assumed it's tougher on the East Coast because you have to, you know, I asked one of the folks engaged in this, I said, you know, you're learning new things about pests, what's your biggest pest problem? And he looked at me and he said, humidity. They're not used to that from California, so they're relearning how to grow things, but there's thousands of acres coming on in fresh uh, vegetables in Georgia and New York State and trying to find other regions to produce in and look, you know, take what they learned in that California environment or that West Coast environment and try to reapply it and adjust and see what they can do on the East Coast. So it's really interesting to see how quickly that's happening in terms of adaptivity. Part of it is, is weather and part of it is access to adequate labor to get the work done. And part of it is the desire on the large grocery store chains to have food produced within the region rather than being shipped across the country. So sort of all those trends are in play. Not all segments of the organic industry saw the strong growth of produce. Dairy, for example, was hit hard by slowing sales in the second straight year. The dairy market had sort of the absolutely the worst performance within the industry for the year, uh, less just under 1% growth for dairy as a whole. When you unpack that, um, really the thing dragging down the market is fluid milk and particularly low-fat, no-fat fluid milk. Um, and there's too much of it on the market and that's where the sales have shrunk. Things that are high in fat, cheese, butter, ice cream, 
things like that actually grew quite well in the marketplace. It's people shifting preferences and there's a, a, a number of drivers to that and there's ways that the industry is responding that I think is unique as compared to dairy as a whole. We know dairy's in a world of hurt, that's across the board. The organic market is, is more uh, stable, offers higher prices for farmers, but it's not entirely completely decoupled from dairy trends as a whole. Um, and a few things are going on. Folks are drinking less milk, period. They're seeking plant-based options. We're seeing in the marketplace that oftentimes that switch, we have a, uh, in the, what we consider the natural channel, which is like originally what was like Whole Foods and independent stores and things that are positioned as natural and healthy like you see at the expos and stuff. You know, for dairy, you know, organic probably has, you know, 80% penetration in that universe, right? Plant-based beverages, it's way lower. So there's something in the marketplace, there's some good organic options out there, but there's something in the marketplace that the consumer switching from organic milk is not necessarily uh, carrying organic as the preference that over. If they go to plant-based, they're like, did something quote unquote better, check the box, sort of moving on. So we're seeing less capture of the organic market there. But I think um, the other important thing in terms of changing preference is, is there's, we have a regulatory challenge where uh, the National Organic Program has not completed a rule on how dairy cows come into organic and they are allowing a new application of the inconsistency that's allowing cows to come in and out of organic and that part of what the transition period does in organic is sort of drag it, it's a creates a barrier to entry to the marketplace and it's not you can't get in quick but the way they're allowing the standard to be applied right now allows a lot of cows to come in quickly creates gluts of milk it's not all bad news in dairy though one bright spot has been around innovation which Bacha said could help balance shifting diet trends in the future. One of the things we're seeing from the organic dairy market is a lot of innovation in milk. So you're seeing uh, A2 milk on the market, breeds for lactose intolerance. You're seeing high protein milk on the marketplace. You're seeing grass-fed milk still grow. So everywhere that organic milk is innovating on fluid milk, they're succeeding. And I think you're gonna see more of that. I think we're expecting this year to see some innovation even in the low-fat space where low-fat, high-protein milk, which is something that should be really appealing to consumers when it gets out there. So the organic dairy is is really innovating as a way to succeed in trying to stick with the consumer and push the envelope rather than take an approach that is uh, subsidy-based or you know trade dollars or, or whatever it is. They're really trying to continue to push the envelope and, and keep up with the consumer. While overall sales of organic remain strong, the industry has faced several other challenges, some of which threaten its reputation. These have pushed OTA to explore how to reinforce, and in some cases, enforce, the program's standards to ensure they meet consumer expectations. One of the challenges that OTA members discussed with legislative staff when they visited Capitol Hill last week were recent incidents of imported grain and oil seed from Turkey and the Black Sea, which were fraudulently labeled as organic, and the need to implement better oversight and enforcement of the organic standard, as outlined in the 2018 Farm Bill. 
OTA and the industry responded quickly to the discovery of fraud by having legislators add to the Farm Bill that the National Organic Program and Certifying Agents Authority to increase documentation and verification from producers and handlers if there's a compliance risk. It also gave the NOP more enforcement power over organic creditors down to the satellite office, which is something that Botch notes previously hindered appropriate enforcement, but which USDA and the NOP already are exercising. One of the things that we were uh, uh, working on in the bill was to provide authority for USDA to, they accredit certifiers worldwide, so there's 70 of them, and they're accredited to USDA, they operate globally. Um, and they hold one accreditation, and some of the largest ones operate in many, many countries around the globe. And until the Farm Bill was signed into law, NOP didn't have the authority to, on a good timeline, uh, deaccredit a satellite office. They had to deaccredit the entire global certifier if there was a problem. So the Farm Bill gave them the ability to go in and shut down an office in a region if that was what the problem was. And they just took action um, on May 9th, and they revoked the accreditation for Control Union to operate in Turkey and the, and the countries surrounding the Black Sea region, following an investigation on the fraudulent grain that came into the country. So within six months of enacting the law, they've utilized the authority and, and taken away the accreditation of this office. And um, one of the other things that the, the Farm Bill gave them in terms of increased uh, authority was the ability to follow complaints based on risk and deploy resources and require additional documentation under under areas that they designated risk and they did a full audit of the Black Sea region five countries and they worked with other agencies and assessed the yield balance coming out of all five countries for four commodities a full mass balance on the organic production in the region and 60% of the farms in the region have lost their certification since the first of the year as a result of that work that they did. These are, again, authorities that were granted in the Farm Bill. When the certifier loses their accreditation in Turkey, the, the businesses that were certified by them maintain their certification. They have to have the ability to go to a new certifier. So they have 60 days to re-enter certification through another certifier. And the National Organic Program issued a directive to all certifiers, again, with their enhanced authority from the Farm Bill, telling all certifiers that you must ask all these additional questions and be prepared to prove the validity of the operation if you pick up the client. So you have to let, because not everybody is cheating, obviously, and you've got to have a pathway for people. Bacha also noted that the unprecedented laundry list of extra oversight requirements that NOP is demanding certifiers take on the grain and oilseed producers in the Black Sea, as outlined in a May 15th directive from USDA. These include at least one additional unannounced inspection of 50% of the certifiers' grain and oilseed producers in the Black Sea region by December 31st, and additional samples of pesticide and residue testing from the producers in the region are also due by the end of the year. The Farm Bill also requires USDA to issue a final rule strengthening organic enforcement by the end of the year, requiring all entities in the global organic supply chain, such as ports, brokers, and importers, to become certified, thus closing a loophole that Bacha said that industry has long been aggravated by.
There's some things that will happen in the proposed rule that they don't have the authority to do until they finish the regulations, and that's particularly um, narrowing the number of operation type of operations that can be excluded from certification. Original regulation allowed brokers and handlers that don't open product to not maintain certification, but it creates breaks in the chain. And so they're eliminating that where transporters, importers, brokers, even if you're not opening and repackaging, will have to be certified in the system so that there's a continuous chain with certifier oversight. And so that's sort of the heart of the regulation that they're working on. Another weak spot in the organic industry that Bacha said OTA members lobbied legislators for support was to repair the public-private partnership on which NOP is based. She explained that in the last 10 years, industry has advanced 20 consensus recommendations for improvements to the organic standards, but USDA has not completed a rulemaking on a single one of them. We're working uh, to try to get uh, congressional support for rethinking the way organic voluntary standards move through the regulatory pipeline in government and how to create more transparency and accountability in that process and establish an affirmative obligation to move forward on standards developments when industry agrees to them. You know, we know that uh, organics got to stay in terms of best practices and sustainable ag and what the consumer is expecting from food. And so this is something that really can't thrive over the next decade with a standard that's chiseled in stone and can't ever change. Um, I think consumers expect more from us than that. And uh, uh, embed continuous improvement into not only the standard, but the practices on the farm. Um, and we're starting with some look at, number one, how the recommendations go to USDA, how the unified agenda is managed, how the Office of Management and Budget reviews the regulations when they move through the pipeline so that they are not subject to the same requirements as a mandatory regulation that's imposed on an industry, because this is a voluntary program. So some of the things that we're looking at are if the NOSB passes a consensus recommendation, USDA must put it on their work plan on the unified agenda. They must publish a timeline, provide updates. If they remove something from the unified agenda, they must uh, notice the public and Congress as to the rationale. Because there may be some, you know, uh, occurrence of a, of a good reason they couldn't move forward, but they've got to disclose that reason as to why something would come off the work plan. And then changing the way the Office of Management and Budget reviews the regulations. So right now, one of the big things that sets the timeline up in the Office of Management and Budget is uh, whether or not a regulation is deemed significant. And there are two ways that they deem regulations significant. One is cost. That's obvious. It's like $100 million or something like that. And the other is what they call, quote unquote, a novel policy. And uh, the black box of OMB doesn't have clear criteria for determining novel policy. But their current approach is that anything related to organic is a novel policy. So regardless of the cost, it's deemed significant for the purpose of rulemaking. Um, so our contention is if it's got industry consensus and it's already been through what is a, um, a public comment period at the Natural Organic Standards Board that is APA that's been pre-vetted, that uh, in the absence of, of a cost 
determination on significance, they shouldn't be designating these rules, upgrades to the standards or clarifications to the standards as significant. So it's a little bit esoteric, but we're really trying to sort of rejigger the way these regulations might be able to move. Other talking points promoted by OTA members when they visited offices of their legislators last week include the previously mentioned need for a final rule on the origin of livestock, recognition of the contribution of organic to mitigating climate change, and a desire for increased accessibility for organic in the federal programs that feed children. While all of these deserve more attention, I'm afraid we've reached the end of another episode of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. I hope you'll tune in again next week, though, and to help you remember, I encourage you to subscribe to us on iTunes. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Crawford wishing you a productive and profitable week.